Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my partner in crime and co-host, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? I'm feeling good tonight, Foltz. How are you, man? I'm good, as always. Feeling good. Uh, feeling Actually, been feeling really good. Um, we actually just put out our first after show out onto YouTube. That was a lot of fun putting together. That was a ton of fun. <clears throat> we uh, Our first episode that we put out for after show <clears throat> was basically more or less a... Uh, just a little getting to know me and Steve session, a little back and forth, a little uh, history on production of the show. and <clears throat> Kind of like what you would see if you came out and saw us live. Right, exactly. Um, but, I mean, well, but our, our, our live shows do have a lot more to do with them than just sitting there and answering right, questions. Right, the intro. Right. But uh, we had a lot of fun with it. And going forward, um, now that we kind of did the introduction YouTube episode, we're going to be... Uh, breaking down our, our episodes that, that we've been doing. Uh, we have a, uh, <clears throat> a great host by the name of Brian, <clears throat> Brian Webb, who is uh, hosting our after show and uh, helping Subtle Beast out with uh, some of their day-to-day operations. So we really thank him. He's been a great help to us. And uh, it's going to be uh, trying to help Subtle Beast take us a little further into the future. So uh, we're going to be uh, shooting regularly for the after show. So uh be looking for those to be coming out weekly, just as uh, just like our podcast does. Yeah, if you haven't been to YouTube and watched our video yet, you can check it out at Subtle Beast Podcast uh, in the search bar on YouTube. Absolutely. And if there's any questions that you, our listeners, would like to ask us directly, go out there, write them in the comments of uh, the show that we put out there. And uh, we'll address them. And we can, uh, if you want, we can address you by screen name, or we can just uh, simply just ask the question and uh, get the answers for y'all. If you want to be on the show, put that in the comments. Yeah. If you got a story that you'd like to share, or you'd like to come on the show just to share an experience or a story that you once heard or told or saw, contact us. Uh, you can contact us on social media, obviously, and YouTube and. You can get a hold of us. We just want to hear your story, and uh, we'll share it with the world. It, yeah, the after show is a great time. I'm so happy. Took a lot of work to get out there, but it's up and running, and I'm excited about it. Yep, and our and our production is just going to continuously expand and just get better and better. And uh, we got a lot of great things still in store for the future outside of our after show. So it's it's a really exciting time. Now, one cool thing that I did hear recently, which works perfectly for Subtle Beast and a lot of the theories that <clears throat> that we throw out there, um, this, ha- this has to do with CERN. Now, of course, we've discussed CERN at least four different times on four different episodes of uh, the Mandela Effect. We did three different episodes. Of the- well, we did four episodes of the Mandela Effect, but one was called the Mingle Effect, because of the episode of X-Files, and that's what they were calling it on there. That's what that guy always... It's not the Mandela effect. It's the Mingle effect. But um, <clears throat> you'll have to go back and listen to that if you haven't heard the Mandela and, and, and listen to the correlation between Mandela effect and CERN. But <clears throat> having said that, um, 
something as uh, incredible has happened at CERN just recently that scientists say that they have clocked neutrinos, which are tiny particles that are smaller than atoms, traveling at 300,000 and six kilometers per second, which is slightly faster than the speed of light, which is pretty incredible. Now, the speed of light is 299,792, or what was it, 299,792,458 miles per second. Right. So they've been able to get a particle. So everything starts with a particle or an atom. Well, if they can get that moving, then that means that it's not impossible. So if we have a civilization out in space somewhere, out in another galaxy that's 100,000 to maybe a million years more advanced than human beings, well, we're right at the step where maybe they were a million years ago. So if they could do it, then they could travel through, they could create something that could travel at the speed of light, or they could even have the power to travel through wormholes and get here even faster because our physics has once said that nothing can travel at the speed of light other than light. Well, CERN has just proven that to be not the case, which really opens up Pandora's box for a whole lot, including our topic to tonight, which has to do with that very thing, with aliens being able to travel to Earth back in 1994 to Zimbabwe in Africa to a place called the Aerial School. So uh, we're just going to jump right into it. Now, in 1994, teachers and school officials at the area school in Ruwa, Zimbabwe, were astonished when no less than 62 students claimed to have had a bizarre and terrifying prophetic encounter with a UFO and its an and its unearthly occupants. Friday, September 16th, 1994, the Republic of Zimbabwe's Aerial School, a private elementary school about 20 miles outside the capital city of Harare, became the host of one of the most unusual cases in the history of ufology. When a throng of over 60 school children claimed to have had a run-in with a pair of creatures from out of this world, <clears throat> The event began at approximately 10.15 a.m., while the children, who ranged in age from 5 to 12 years old and were African, Asian, and European descent, were playing in a field adjacent to the school during the mid-morning break on already scorching 91-degree day. The children claimed that while they were playing, they noticed three silver balls soaring in the sky above the school. These orbs, which quickly caught the attention of the whole group, intermittently flashed red and would disappear in a burst of light and then reappeared in another section of the sky. According to eyewitnesses, these mysterious metallic objects vanished and rematerialized three more times before slowly descending toward the school following a line of transmission towers. Now, these anxious kids then claimed that one of the silver UFOs dropped lower than the others and landed or hovered or just above the ground in a cluster of gum trees about 300 feet away from where the kids were playing. Now, due to pro proliferation of thorn bushes and poisonous snakes and spiders, the area where the UFO had landed was always forbidden to the children, but was not fenced off from the schoolyard. This allowed the still frightened yet intensely curious kids to approach, to approach the unusual object. It was at this moment that this already strange scene took a, took a turn of the bizarre when a small, black-clad, humanoid figure, approximately three feet in height, emerged from the top of the object. The witness claimed that the being suit was shiny and tight-fitting. They also stated that it had a scrawny neck, 
a narrow face, thin arms and legs, long black hair, and huge eyes like rugby balls. The entity, apparently unaware of the growing crowd of spectators, scrambled down to the rough patch of earth, presumably to explore the terrain. Not unlike the bizarre geologically inclined beings that landed in the Russian city of Orenza in 1989. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell that. It's V-O-R-O-N-E-Z-H. My Russian isn't the greatest, unlike my German pronunciations. from Right, yeah. So, yeah. The Stutzelwurm. <laughs> the creature apparently moved back and forth in the scrub brush like it was bouncing as if he were here on the moon, but not quite so much. This description is similar to that given by two Finnish lumberjacks who, in 1971, claimed to have encountered a green spacesuit-clad three-foot alien known as the Kinula humanoid that also seemed to exhibit an apparent lack of weight while on the terra firma. It was at this point that a second shiny-suited entity emerged from the top of the craft, while the first seemed to, almost inadvertently, approach the children. The younger kids, horrified by the interstellar apparitions, began screaming in terror and calling out for help. Apparently, they believe these creatures to be demons, known as the Tokoloshi, which are notorious for devouring young ones. The terrified children ran to the school, leaving the older students behind. Now, the Tokoloshi... We just did a show on cryptids, but that one didn't seem to come up. That just must be a uh, something that the people in South Africa tell their kids to keep them scared to death. Right, that's a demon. Right. <clears throat> you want to you want to jump in here? Okay. So at this point, the first humanoid, suddenly aware of the youthful eyes that were watching its every move, disappeared without warning. Within seconds, the same creature, or one identical to it, reemerged behind the craft. The two beings stared motionlessly at the lingering children. When the panic-stricken horde of youngsters entered the school, the hallways were eerily vacant because the teachers were all attending a faculty meeting. The kids then came across the only available adult, the mother of one of the students who was operating the school's tuck shop, a snack bar where candy and sodas were sold. Sadly, this unnamed woman refused to leave her post unattended, believing, perhaps, that this was nothing more than an elaborate ruse fabricated by the students to gain access to her cache of sweets. The teachers at the school later admitted that the 62 children were essentially unsupervised while in the schoolyard during the morning recess, and claimed that they ignored the students' fearful cries, assuming that they were nothing more than the mirthful screeches often associated with schoolyard play. The older students, who remained outside, still enthralled by the UFO and its inhabitants, claimed that the creatures communicated with them telepathically. Through what one still visibly frightened girl would describe as their horrible eyes. That would be scary. I mean, it's pretty you, intense. You're, you got kids that are ranging in age from five to 12, seeing some things that nobody has ever seen. And uh, it just, it would blow your mind. It would be scary. And on top of that, it would be the fact that your parents told you that it was this creature that may devour you. No wonder the little ones ran. Oh, yeah. You're believing that your whole life. And now all of a sudden you come face to face with this thing. Yeah. 
What else are you going to think? Well, let's find out from some other students. Another student, known only by the pseudonym Elsa, claimed that she felt horrible for the rest of the day, unable to shake the horrific images that had been implanted in her brain by the beings. She believed that they wanted to convey to the human race a grave warning to stop destroying the planet or face consequences. The world is going to end. Maybe because we don't look after our planet or the air. Like all the trees will go down and there will be no air. People will be dying. Those thoughts came from the man. The man's eyes. Oof. A 10-year-old, Isabel, also expressed just how frightening these creatures were. He was just staring. He was scary. We were trying not to look at him because he was scary. My eyes and feelings went with him. Elsa claimed that the overwhelming sensation she had while staring at the alien's horrific eyes was, we are doing harm to the earth. Well, that, that, that reminds me of the movie uh, with Keanu Reeves, the remake of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. He was there for that very reason. Uh, the humans had destroyed the earth long enough, and he was going to use all these uh, nanobots with nanotechnology which, if you don't know too much about nanotechnology, we did a full episode on that, so uh, make sure you go and check that out. But all these little nanotechnology bots were going to just devour the Earth. And at one point, they, um, I think it was the Secretary of State even said to Keanu Reeves, the alien, what are you doing here on our planet? And he just looked at her and said, your planet? Like You guys are just tourists here, basically. We've been looking after this planet forever. And you're destroying it. It seems like a common theme that aliens visit the Earth when there are times of flux where we're possibly going to damage the planet or the the ecosystem, such as when we discovered nuclear energy. Yeah, when we dropped the first atom bomb. And then what happened recently after that? Roswell. Because we've said it on uh, on. Uh, other podcasts that if you believe in the multidimensional theory that that atom bomb could have quite possibly done more damage in another dimension that it actually did right here on our planet so they may not necessarily be beings in crafts from from another star system but from maybe another um, Dimension. uh, dimension yeah exactly now another student also indicated that these extraterrestrials seemed to feel that human technology was growing quickly out of control and suggested something is going to happen and that we need to be careful of our technology. Just like a show we just did on the singularity. Yeah, the singularity. Now, following this silent yet powerful message, which seems profoundly more direct than the vague warnings of the doom that are alleged to come from the appearances of the Mothman and its ilk, the being disappeared again, and the silvery oval-shaped object ascended up through the gum trees and out of the and at correct incredible velocity and vanished. The entire event only lasted about fifteen minutes. It should also be noted that scores of people who, who have had alien encounters also claim to have been shown apocalyptic visions by their extraterrestrial captors. I mean, one has to wonder, how long are they going to really put up with us with just in a complete state of war all the time and using fossil fuels and just destroying reproducing our, pl- our reproduction we're infesting this planet with humans yeah i just said to my son the other day um 
you know, as much as I love mankind and I love people, that it seems that human beings have just become a virus to this planet. It's amazing to me that we've taken an animal that was indigenous to this planet, the cow, eaten it so much and we've reproduced so much and overpopulated the planet to the point where we need to raise so many cows that the gases that come out of the cows are eating away at the protective layer of our atmosphere right to the point where it's no longer going to protect us from the harmful gamma rays of the sun i think that there's a spot on the earth within uh, within our protective shield that's only like maybe a degree away from the point of no return. Sounds right. But um, we'll be discussing that on another future podcast, so just hang tight. Now, this fascinating report may have ended there. Or if it were not for an intrepid investigator and journalist named Cynthia Hind, known during her lifetime as Africa's foremost UFO researcher, who was hot on the case the very next day. When first informed of the incident, Hine wasted no time in contacting the headmaster of the area school, Colin Mackey, and asking him to have the children draw pictures of what they had seen in the schoolyard. When Hine arrived at the scene of the encounter, Mackey had about 35 drawings waiting for her. They were very similar in their depictions of the vehicle and the alien life form accompanying it. Hines also investigated the area of the alleged landing with her son, a BBC reporter and electrical expert, Gunter Hoffer. Hoffer scanned the area with a Geiger counter, but no traces of radiation were found at the scene. Now, Mackey, though personally skeptical about UFOs and alien visitations, confirmed to Hine that he believed that the students were telling the truth. Hine would later state that these rural school children had little or no exposure to TV or popular press reports of UFOs. It was at this point that the American psychiatrist and leading authority on alleged alien abduction experiences, Dr. John Mack, got involved with the investigation. Now, as luck would have it, Mack, a professor at Harvard Medical School and Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, was traveling through Zimbabwe at the time of the event. And as soon as he got wind of the odd encounter, he and his associate, Dominique Kalamanpoulos, journeyed to Ruwa, where they spent two days interviewing 12 of the children, their parents, and the faculty. Now, Mac's experience in the child psychiatry enabled him to quickly gain the trust of his young witnesses, who were not only traumatized by this horrific event, but by no doubt mortified by the ridicule that it would inspire. One little girl was so afraid, not being believed, that she said, I swear by every hair on my head in the whole Bible that I'm telling the truth. According to Mac, the 12 children he interviewed gave consistent and reliable accounts of the occurrence, leading him to believe it was not a case of mass hysteria, but genuine alien encounter. Nevertheless, skeptics still abound, but even one of the most devoted doubters, an aerial school teacher who withheld his name, claimed he eventually changed his mind about the case due to the consistency of the reports from the kids. While the lack of adult witnesses has led some to conclude that this incident is nothing more than a prank produced in the fertile mind of precocious children, one must consider if it is remotely feasible for 62 preteens to concoct a successful hoax that requires the youngest of the bunch to be <coughs> fiend in terror, while the eldest jeopardize their reputations by claiming to not only have seen an alien, but to have shared a psychic connection with it. 
not to mention the sheer psychological effort it would take to collaborate a tale as elaborate as this. It should also be noted that in the 16 years following this harrowing event, there have been no public claims that this was a hoax made by the eyewitnesses, some of whom are now parents themselves. Crazy. It is. I mean, testimony of 62 people. Our court system goes based off of the judgment of 12 yeah, and they all told the same thing, and they all wrote the pictures down immediately. I think it was great for the uh, extraterrestrial investigator, Hind, to call the headmaster and say, while it's still fresh in their mind, have them all draw pictures of what they saw, collect them, I'll be there as soon as I can, and I want to see them as soon as I get there. I mean, it, you got to believe the children. I mean, there's an old saying that if you want the truth, ask a child or a drunk. And in this case, I mean, why would it, it would take, like, like the author said, or, 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 or the psychiatrist said, it would take a lot to collaborate 62 children of ages from five to preteen to come up with the same story and stick to it their entire lives. Right. And the, the younger ones being five and six year olds, it's going to be really hard for a group of them to tell the same story separated. Right, and they're go- and you can tell when kids are lying because they're gonna have like a little smile on their face. They'll be trying to remember if they're fidgeting with their hands or you know they're trying to concoct a story. Trust me, I know I have four, and they can't wait to give it away. Yeah, exactly. So you know you could dangle you know a couple sweets in front of them, and uh, but that's yeah. not what happened here. No, that's not. This one actually took place. This incident took place, and you can tell because over sixty people said the same thing at the same time and it was deemed by a harvard medical doctor not to be mass hysteria right and we're going to put up some of the drawings that these kids did on a on on our social media platform so you can see the consistency steve you want to go while it is difficult to ascertain if these additional events had anything to do with the close encounter of the third kind that occurred at the aerial school on september 16th It bears mentioning that on the morning of September 14th, eyewitnesses across South Africa also claimed to have seen a meteor-like object. As if this weren't astounding enough, over 100 children at the Peer House School, which is located just 25 miles from Wawa, watched as a UFO hovered and apparently searched for a place to land. At the same time, the school kids at Pier House were awed by the celestial antics. All of the school buses in Rawa School District apparently lost the use of their radios, receiving nothing but static. Of course, it wasn't long before the aerial school encounter put the small farming community of Rawa, Zimbabwe, on the map. The event made headlines all over the world and also became the subject of numerous television reports. This event has become the Dark Continent's equivalent of the now legendary Roswell incident and is considered by some investigators to be one of the best close encounter cases in the long history of ufology. Will Butch, board member of of the John E. Mack Institute in Cambridge summed up his opinion on this strange and frightening meeting of the worlds. Something strange happened to the group of children that left them with the impression some form of sentient life cared about the earth and cared about the environment and even cared about those children. 
Butch's assumptions seemed debatable considering the frightened reaction of the children that they had to this alien entity and the message hidden behind its horrible black eyes. Still, one can't help but to wonder, did this creature come to warn us about the consequences of environmental abuse so we could make the changes necessary to reverse its effects? Or, more frighteningly, was it issuing a thinly veiled threat? A final decree telling the human race, in no uncertain terms, to fix our world or else. It makes me wonder if these extra now I'm I'm certain that they probably did because if they can travel here interstellarly or from a different dimension that they're of great intelligence but I wonder if what they knew that they were they were trying to pass this message on to children that at the time really couldn't do anything or were they trying to plant seeds for these children when they grow up you know you have you have to do better you have your whole purpose on this planet should be trying to reshape this planet and and, and do something for good get rid of some of the gases and then get rid of some of the petrol fuel and all that kind of stuff we've always debated time and time how it's um a, a man created stigma and how it doesn't equal what we think it equals once you get into interstellar travel if that's the case and aliens did visit the earth then maybe they would visit children because they have more time on this planet instead of visiting someone who's only got a mere 20 years of earthly time left they visit a child who's got 60 years left absolutely and we're going to eventually do a show on an extraterrestrial that took the approach of trying to communicate with adults and actually even Congress and the President of the United States and basically was just laughed at. But that's for a future show. Now, remembering Zimbabwe's great alien invasion, now tracking down one of the aerial school experiences took some doing. But eventually, I connected with Sarah in what she referred to as the most stubborn old roadie white Rhodesian bar in downtown Herrera of the more than 110 children and staff who had been at the school, which sits just outside the small agri- agricultural center of Ruwa when the aliens landed in 94. She thought she was probably the only one still in the country. Everyone moved off to Canada or, or the UK, she said, or died. When it became clear to her drinking buddies that we were all going to be talking about UFOs, eyes began to roll. My gosh, not I, not E.T. again, someone murmured. She ignored him. What do you want to know? Actually, it'll be simpler if I just shoot. It happened, okay? 62 kids between the ages of about 6 and 12 saw the aliens land and get out of their little ships. When the kids returned to class, they were completely freaked and couldn't stop nattering about little men who looked a little bit like Michael Jackson. The teachers told them to shut up, as teachers won't, as teachers are wont to do, and classes proceeded. But the next day, the school received a bunch of calls from parents wanting to know why their kids were spooked. It got so that the teachers started to freak out, too, and a local UFO expert called Cynthia Hine was invited to speak to everyone. It was via her, I think, that we heard about a famous shrink who was coming from the U.S. to assess the children. What was his name now? Mac, Dr. John Mack, who I heard was killed by a drunk driver a few years back. He was a dedicated investigator. 
Hind, who died in 2000, had publicly acknowledged her own experiences with otherworldly beings in the past and had dedicated the past decade and a half of her life to investigating UFO sightings on the African continent on behalf of the Mutual UFO Network and then publishing her findings in the very collectible newsletter, The UFO Afrin News. I had brought along a printout of issue 11, which I had opened on the bar counter before Sarah on Hines' article, UFO Flap in Zimbabwe, case number 95. It begins Wednesday, September 14th, 1994. It was an exciting night for Southern Africa. At around 2050 to 2105 hours, a pyrotechnic display of some magnificence appeared in the almost clear night skies of this part of the continent. Astronomers across the region soon reported that the pyrotechnic display seemed as far afield as Zambia and Botswana had been a meteor shower. Hine, though, recorded receiving dozens of reports of a capsule-like fireball trailing fire and flanked by two smaller capsules. She also received several reports of alien sightings around the same time. A young boy and his mother reported a daylight sighting. A trucker who had seen some strange beings on the road at night and then, on September 16, Hein received the report from Ariel School, which she records as Case 96, and describes one of the most exciting UFO stories of this or any year. I like that. I do, too. Now, we're going to go into a little bit of the childhood rec- recollections. Uh, Steve, do you want to take this? Sure do. Hein's narrative closely mirrors Sarah's recollection. At 10 a.m., Hind writes, on a hot day, the children were let out for their mid-morning break. And this story is going to sound similar to the first story. It's just from a different perspective with a few different tidbits of information. Yeah, from a kid's recollection. They were drawn to an area beyond their playing field of long grass with thorn and other indigenous bushes. Trees growing all higgly-piggly fashion and undergrowth thick and heavy enough to hide a child should he venture there. The teachers had all entered the staff room for a meeting, and the only adult outdoors was the tuck shop mistress, who was soon swamped by children claiming they had seen three or four objects coming into the rough brush area, disc-like objects coming in along the power lines, and finally landing in the rough among the trees. The children were a bit afraid, although they were curious. The UFO investigator goes on to record the testimonies of several of the children, who she says represented a cross-section of Zimbabweans, black African children from several tribes, children who were crossbred of black and white, Asian children, and white children, mostly Zimbabwean-born, but whose parents were from either South Africa or Britain. Although they all came from wealthy families, see tuition at the aerial school was expensive, Heim believed their cultural differences gave rise to differing interpretations of the event, and that the differences in the interpretation made the details that were common to all accounts very compelling indeed. One of the students, for example, thought at first that the little man in black might have been Mrs. Stevens Gardner. But then he saw that the figure had long, straight black hair, not really like a black person's hair. So he realized he had made a mistake. That would have been an incredible mistake. You think you're looking at a human, but you're not. Right. Some of the other children 
thought the short little beings were Zvikwambo or Tokoloshos, the evil goblins of Shona and Debel folklore, and burst into tears, fearing they were going to be eaten. Guy G said, I could see the little man, about a meter tall, was dressed in a black shiny suit, that he had long black hair and his eyes, which seemed lower on the cheeks than ours, were large and elongated. The mouth was just a slit, and the ears were hardly discernible. It sounds like a, like your typical gray is what he's describing. It sounds exactly like that. I like it. Now, you're going to have your parents' disbelief when it comes to children. Now, Hines' account ends with her outrage at the disbelief of the children's parents. What a frightening indictment of our society that when we are confronted by something we don't understand, we don't even attempt to open our minds to the event. After reading the article, Sarah ordered another castle and said, To be perfectly honest, I don't think you would be here talking to me now if it wasn't for that woman. What happened at Ariel was certainly weird. So many kids coming back from break with such similar stories. But I doubt many people would have heard about it if Hind hadn't made such a fuss. She was the first person to interview the kids and got the news out to all sorts of important people, Mac included. As if, you know, finally, here is some vindication. Hines' description of Mac from this time do indeed suggest she regarded him as something of a redeemer figure, a man who was not only open-minded and prepared to listen, but an academic of some, of some standing, and one who would risk his credibility with his colleagues to come out and say he believes the experiences of abductees are very real indeed. Who was this man, Mac? whose interest transformed a local curiosity into the study that continues to animate UFO chat rooms to this day. I'd been told a little of his biography by a relative of mine called Nicky Carter, who after hearing of the incident from a brother at the aerial school, had been the first media respondent covering it as a producer for an SABC current affair program called Agenda. Now, he's talking about a prize-winning author now, Dr. John E. Mack. She said had been a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, awarded for his 1977 study of Lawrence of Arabia, a prince of our disorder, the life of T.E. Lawrence, and a professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Highly regarded. Mack had nevertheless had been having a tough year professionally when Carter met him. His problems stemmed from his interest in alien abduction phenomena, which, had begun, which he had begun researching in the early 1990s, and about which he had written the best-selling book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. Carner sent me Mac's own account of the fallout in the spring of 1994. He writes in his second book on alien abduction phenomenon, Passport to the Cosmos. One of the deans at Harvard Medical School handed me a letter that called for the establishment of a small committee to investigate my work on abdalian abduction phenomenon very cool so even harvard's recognizing it as something that needs to be looked in and they didn't look at at at, at their professor at that school as a kook they looked at him as somebody that they're going to give a little bit more money and budget to to uh look into this so now after explaining vaguely that concerns had been expressed to the university about what i was doing although he told of he 
although he told of no specific complaint, nor was any offered in the letter. He added pleasantly, for he had been a friend and colleague, that I would not have gotten into trouble if I had not suggested in the book Abduction that my findings might require a change in our view of reality. Rather than saying that, I found a new psychiatrist syndrome whose cause had not yet been established. Another peer, Paul McHugh of John Hopkins Medical School, was less delicate, describing Mac in the Los Angeles Times as a brilliant fellow who occasionally loses it, and this time he lost it big time, quote-unquote. Mac's standard rejoinder was to point out that, although alien encounters were not possible, quote-unquote, according to science of the Times, they might nevertheless turn out to be real in some way that we do not understand at the bizarre reports of rocks we now call meteorites falling from the sky seemed impossible in the 18th century. So they attempted an ouster. By mid-1994, Mack had overcome attempts at an ouster by some of his Harvard colleagues and was planning to expand the scope of his research to include African alien encounters and abductions. A flight was booked to South Africa where Mac had organized to meet with experiencers such as the well-known traditional healer and author Credo Matwa, who was to tell Mac, according to Carter, who covered the interview for the SABC, about his encounter with a golden-haired, blue-eyed female alien. As he was preparing to depart for Africa, news of the aerial school encounter broke, and Mac adjusted his travel plans accordingly. These were the extraordinary coincidences by which the world's most newsworthy psychiatrist happened to land meteor-like in Zimbabwe. Hind recorded how he appeared on two radio shows and one TV program before driving the 35 kilometers to Harar to, from Harar to Rawa. These days were filled with exciting revelations for him, wrote Hind. John was able to get through to parents and teachers and convince them that even if they did not believe the children, it was counterproductive to accuse them of lying. What interested Mac was how the children's accounts connected to things that he'd been told by others of his experiencer participants, namely that the aliens had communicated an urgent environmental message. In Passport to the Cosmos, Mac records that after some years of research, he was astonished to discover, in case after case, powerful messages about the human threat to the Earth's ecology and what we were doing conveyed to the experiencers. Unmistakably, words and images. He personally deemed it quite possible that the protection of the Earth's life is at the heart of the abduction phenomenon. That's great. Yeah, I liked it. Now, we have some original interviews. Now, snippets of Max interviews with the children can still be found on YouTube today. A fifth grader called Francis tells the gentle-eyed psychiatrist he was warned about something that was going to happen and that pollution mustn't be. An 11-year-old Emma says, I think they want people to know that we're actually making harm on this world and we mustn't get too technological. I queued up one of the clips on my phone for Sarah, but she waved it away. I can't, I can't, no. I've had too much of my own experience to want to relive somebody else's. After a long draw on her beer, she said, they weren't wrong though 
about the environmental stuff, were they? If you go out there now, you'll see the Miombo forests have disappeared for firewood. But during my first visit to the district, what had struck me what had struck me was not the state of the forest, but the fact that the aerial school had continued to grow in pupil numbers and looked to be prospering. The khaki uniforms, the red floppy hats, the break time cheering, it all matched the YouTube clips, only there were no longer any white students, the white farming families having all moved elsewhere as a result of the government's radical land reform policies. The quote-unquote rough area beyond the playground had been stumped and mown into a second sports field, dusty for one of rain. I asked a few teachers I bumped into about the events of 1994, but it seemed that the aspect of the school's history had left with the farmers. There was his documentary being made at, at, at there was a documentary being made about it at this point, said Sarah, getting a little shaky on her stool. An American chap, uh, what was his name? Randall, Randy, I don't know. Anyway, that was about seven or eight years ago now, and I haven't heard anything since. I know a little more than she did. Again, courtesy of my relative, who had provided local assistance to the documentary maker. After Mac was killed in a car accident in London in 2004, some of his supporters and family members had founded the John E. Mac Institute with a mission to, quote-unquote, explore the frontiers of human experiences to serve the transformation of individual consciousness and to further the evolution and the paradigms by which we understand human identity. That sounds like a place I definitely want to go and study and <laughs> learn yeah. stuff. Yeah. Now, in 2007, to further these rather grandiose aims, a young filmmaker called Randall Nickerson had signed on to do something with the aerial school footage. Jeez, he was so handsome, said Sarah, slapping her palms against her jeans. I could hardly concentrate when he was interviewing me. Not only that, he understood that the thing he understood the thing on a different level because he was an experiencer himself who had been quite open about his encounter. I think he appeared on Oprah. I had contacted Nickerson in 2008, and because he had happened to be in the Cape Town running formal aerial students to ground, we arranged to meet and talk about his project. He canceled at the last minute, though, saying he didn't feel quite ready. Now, from time to time, I checked the Mac Institute webpage for updates, but after a few years, it seemed that the project had run into financial difficulties. Then in late 2013, two hours of footage tagged with Nickerson's name surfaced on YouTube. I can recognize the carcass of the creative albatross when I see one, and the amorphous video dump showed every sign of being just that. As an accidental historical record, though, it's fascinating. A trove of rural school scenes from the eve of an irreversible societal change. The last generation of khaki uniforms, freckled noses, and colonial English accents. And Cynthia Hind, already an anchorism, in a series of pre-independent floral print dresses and wearing what was described as the Bulawayo perm. Tacked on at the end of the video are some snippets of interviews Nickerson conducted with former students. It, quote unquote, it really does stick with me that something happened. Something was out there, says a young man. I think something definitely happened, says a young woman. It's an amazing experience, a former teacher says. We met up on many occasions after that and hugged and shook our heads and said that we, that was the most amazing experience of our lives. Whereas another former student says he hasn't talked about the event to anyone because they probably think I'm nuts. When I told Sarah about the video, she became very agitated. Can I see it? Oh, oh God, no, I don't want to. What do they say? 
Am I on it? She cried. Okay, just show me. We watched the relevant part of the video, Sarah with a hand over her mouth. God, their accents, she said at one point, of the now American Australian English tones that had contrasted so sharply with the voices she had known. It crossed my mind that the truly galvanic event in all of our lives was not that the UFO landing, but the policy from upon high that had turned them into aliens in the New York, London, or wherever. Then again, what did I know? When the clip ended, Sarah stubbed out an Everest menthol and shook her head. You want to know the real message here? The real message is that this stuff can brand you for life. It undermined Mac's credibility, became this huge unending thing for others, and it certainly messed things up. I mean, try telling people that you live in permanent fear for these things returning one day. Try telling them that you can actually sense when they're back in our atmosphere. They'll think you're all kook. All this lot do? She said, casting mock angry eyes down the bar at fellow boozers who raised their glass and said, True, but we love you anyway. Despite her patient despite her patently thick skin, a look of extreme sadness entered Sarah's eyes for a moment, and she pretended to watch her fingers pulling the label from her beer bottle. Man, and to think, I told the family I was just popping out to the Bon Marsh, the bar that they were at. It's a crazy story, man. It, it really is. And it's one that a lot of people aren't too familiar with. Um, it's uh, it's one that, that I really like. And uh, the information that we have on the show is just incredible. I mean, the people that, that conducted some of these interviews and wrote some of these articles, I mean, Sean Christie and, and, and Rob Murphy just uh, – just did some great work on on, on, on the investigations, along with uh, you know Hines and uh, and everybody else that was there actually for or the day after the actual event that these sixty two kids experienced not only seeing a craft, actually seeing uh, uh, extraterrestrial, and some of the older older kids communicated, which what they said through their eyes, telling them we need to change our ways here on Earth. I think it's an incredible story and it feels like it happened when you have 62 kids, even though, Hey, even though their ages range from five to 12, I've, I've known a lot of kids, um, having raised, uh, step kids and, and having a five-year-old. If, if you get that many kids together and they're explaining the same exact thing that happened, the odds are it probably happened. Definitely. I mean, one thing you should do is uh, when your kids come to you, no matter how bizarre or crazy a story is, you should always believe them first, do some investigation, and uh, you know, then you can be the judge of it uh, you know, as, as the parent. But um, this was a fun show to do. Uh, we'll obviously have more information coming up on this when we cover it on our YouTube after show which um, that episode will probably be coming out within the next couple of weeks, I believe. We have some shows that are going to be covered first on the after show coming up here. Uh, so definitely stay tuned. Um, share uh, share our YouTube videos with your friends and in your family and get people excited about our after show because we're going to be going deeper into all the subjects on that. You don't want to miss that. Uh, share our Facebook page. Share our Instagram. Uh, talk about our podcast. Share our podcast. Um, if, if you're just new to, to listening to us, take some time, go back there to the beginning and uh, and listen to a bunch of great podcasts and get caught up with the rest of us because uh, 
these uh, the next podcasts coming out are going to be nothing shy of amazing and stellar. It's true. We've got a ton of episodes up on the board. Uh, we fight, uh, uh, not personally fight, but the episodes kind of fight to see which one's getting priority, which one's going to go next. So stay tuned to Subtle Beast if if you like the sci-fi and the um, ET genre, then we've got tons more stuff coming out. Absolutely. We've got some mind-bending stuff for you. So uh, definitely stick with us. Uh, it's just going to keep getting better and better. But on that note, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.